Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Qinghai province in northwest China is known as the water tower of China as three great rivers including the Yellow, the Yangtze and the Lanzang originate. It is also a place where a lot of ethnic Tibetans have been calling home for centuries. So what are some of the most recent measures they have been taking to make sure that people in the lower reaches of these rivers and people of future generations can continue to drink unpolluted water. Welcome to a special edition of The Point with me, Li Xin, coming to you from Xining, the capital of Qinghai. My guest today is Dongzhou Chunpei, Secretary General of uh, the Snowland Great Rivers Environmental Protection Association. His goal is exactly to safeguard the purity of these places. Dongzhou Chunpei, welcome to The Point. Can you first of all help us understand exactly what it means for Qinghai to be the place of source for three biggest rivers in China, the Yangtze, the Yellow and the Lanzang, which uh, continues to be the Mekong River, which feeds a lot of Southeast Asian countries. How important in terms of ecology of uh, Qinghai? Sanjiangyuan, which means source of three rivers, is home to the headwaters of the Yangtze, Yellow, and Lansang rivers. Countless water sources and rivers flow together and eventually converge, forming these significant and large rivers. The Sanjiangyuan is the largest national nature reserve in China, and the Sanjiangyuan National Park is located right within the nature reserve. The three rivers are widely regarded as the Chinese population's primary drinking water sources. Some can say that approximately half of China's population depends on the water that originates from rivers originating from Sanjiangyuan for their drinking needs. So it's not just a water tower of China, but also that of Asia. Yes, and it's not just the Chinese people. Sanjiangyuan is seen as the water tower of Asia, so more than 2 billion people are directly affected by this important water source. Before taking on the name Sanjiangyuan, we call this area Jianghuyuan, or the source of rivers. It's because many important rivers flow from here into numerous other countries. So when you took up the job as Secretary General of the uh, Snowland uh, Great Rivers Environmental Protection Association, how was the situation? How urgent did you find your job to be? At that time, our main efforts in the area were to develop skilled individuals involved in environmental protection and water conservation. With global warming causing glaciers to retreat and underground water in permafrost regions to diminish, there is a growing concern about the depletion of water sources. However, the residents in the water source areas haven't fully grasped the concept of a water crisis. They still feel a sense of security as living in these regions. 
believing that even if water scarcity becomes a global issue, there will still be water in our water sources. However, during our interviews with local residents, many shared stories of the water sources they depended on in their childhood now drying up, yet they lacked a comprehensive understanding of the exact magnitude and severity of the water depletion. This realization stressed the need for a thorough investigation and deeper comprehension of the situation. Among these villages, we identified four water sources related to the three main rivers. We collected data on over 6,700 water sources from these four villages alone. Considering the scale of 50 villages, it is remarkable to imagine the abundance of water sources and rivers that form the three major rivers in the Sanjiangyuan region. During our research, we found out that more than 700 water sources in the Lansong River water source area had dried up completely. We didn't know in which year this happened. In our interviews, an elderly person in his 80s said, when I was a child, there used to be water sources here but now they are gone. After realizing this, we came to know that the people in the local communities and throughout the entire Xinhai-Tibet plateau are directly affected by the consequences of global warming. This region is one of the most vulnerable areas to climate change worldwide. The newfound awareness prompted a great emphasis on the water source depletion problem. Investigating water sources is vital for addressing global warming. Through these surveys, we aim to raise awareness about the importance of preserving water and the environmental conditions of water sources. During our data collection process, we encountered instances of water sources drying up due to climate change. We also came across water sources drying up due to severe white pollution in the area. Some water sources were not giving enough attention and were damaged by road construction carried out by certain project teams. Has it been difficult to persuade the local people that they must protect this land? Our goal is to preserve these water sources not only for our generation, but also for future generations. Our main objective is to protect the environment and ensure the safety of these water sources. However, we have realized that involving people with a strong emotional connection to the water sources might be more effective than relying on those without such a connection. You have been implementing a project called Zero Waste, um, literally meaning that the local people do not consume products that will leave uh, waste, especially plastic waste, in the areas where the great rivers originate. Um, now you have reached to two of the three rivers and you have reached over a thousand people, over 220 households. Exactly how did you start that idea? Why did you think it was important? The project aims to protect water sources currently facing pollution from plastic waste. About 30 years ago, the Sanjiangyuan area had minimal garbage due to the lifestyle of the local residents, which was closely connected with nature. 
However, over the past few decades, industrial development and changes in people's lifestyles influenced by the media have resulted in more garbage, particularly disposable food packaging and utensils. People now use disposable bags and chopsticks, consume packaged and carbonated beverages and discard empty bottles, contributing to a significant increase in white waste pollution. The people residing in these critical water source areas have the power to both protect and potentially harm the water sources. We saw thought, did this happen due to people's mindset? We began telling local people that white waste should not be thrown away. We weren't sure whether local people lacked environmental awareness or were simply uninformed. I found out that 30 years ago, the everyday things that local people used produced little garbage, whether given to them or used by themselves. They drank bold milk, which came from yaks. Even when they had esteemed guests or visitors, they made milk tea and served it. So harmful and healthy or environmentally damaging food wasn't around that much. What's the biggest obstacle for you in carrying out this project? The real challenge lies in how people choose their way of life. Should we embrace a nature-friendly and sustainable lifestyle or opt for a destructive approach that goes against nature? To make the right choice and to change people's perception pose the biggest project implementation hurdles. I believe it's not just our locals, but many others face this challenge too. The environment we inhabit has never asked for anything in return. We have lived on this land for generations, and it's important to appreciate and protect it. This concept is easy to grasp. In the past, there was a harmonious way of life that revered nature and respected all forms of life. This mindset has always been ingrained in our local culture. It may seem like we're under a lot of pressure, but the real pressure is on the local people who act actually adopt these zero-waste lifestyles at home. Out of over 220 households, not a single person is unwilling, passive or forced into it. Everyone willingly and actively participates. Their culture, beliefs and their mindset play a major role in their choice. Once they develop a correct understanding of the material world, they realize that they are not sacrificing their current development by going zero waste. They are actually opting for a better and healthier life. For them, zero waste living represents a leap into a new era, a lifestyle that people should embrace and choose in this new development phase. During the process of rolling out this project, what kind of collaboration has there been between you and the local uh, authorities? What kind of uh, um, interaction has there been between the two sides? When it comes to pushing these initiatives, the government got on board, addressing the problems of white waste pollution and the pollution damage to water sources. 
they recognize the importance of the issue. They recognize the worth of our ideas. We work closely with village leaders at the committee level. We went door to door to interact with the residents. Unlike agricultural regions with close-knit communities, the Sanjiangyuan area is vast and sparsely populated. The distance between households was considerable. To get our message for a healthier life across, we had to wait until after 8 p.m. when residents finished herding. To promote zero waste, everyone in the family need to understand the concept and get involved. It's not enough for just one person to grasp the concept. That's why we waited until they returned from herding, so that the whole family, including children, elderly and young adults, could be present for the sessions. Sometimes our visits would stretch until around 11 p.m. This phase was quite difficult. The government played a vital role in organizing personnel to implement these initiatives. They worked closely with village leaders and enlisted the help of local environmental officers, known as environmental protectors. We relied on motorcycles for transportation in areas where cars couldn't access. The local community and government provided the motorcycles, and we would ride to reach each household. This greatly facilitated our work. Although the ecological state has improved or environmental uh, situation has improved, but has that brought direct impact, especially improvement, to local people's livelihood, especially income? Women are crucial in implementing zero-waste households. Uh, they were often responsible for household chores and food. Transitioning to a zero-waste lifestyle means replacing many household items, including substandard plastic containers and bags that pose health risks when storing food. When we interviewed some women, they said, it's easy for you to talk about zero-waste not using plastic or disposable bags, but it brings a lot of difficulties and inconvenience in our actual lives. We also identified necessary new items like water containers, yogurt containers, reusable bags, thermos cups, bowls, chopsticks and handkerchiefs. The estimated cost for these supplies to support the zero-waste lifestyle is around 1,500 yuan per household. Although they no longer drink sodas or other packaged beverages, they can still enjoy freshly squeezed juices. Some locals even bought juices. This shift to healthier options improves the locals' quality of life. Additionally, we promote economic growth by producing handmade products like yak butter soap, lip balm, and yak wool and fur. Renowned artisans and designers provide training and guidance to create a series of products. 
One community generates an annual income of 500,000 yuan through these product sales. The community has become self-sustaining and offers a new and a great development choice that is both environmentally friendly and economically beneficial. If we don't give up disposable items, we may never want to stop using them. By giving up disposable items, we can choose safe alternatives for both humans and the environment. Going zero waste requires a new systematic development direction and model. We also started zero waste homestays. Instead of each household running a homestay, we have 138 households jointly operating one. This way, we avoid some potential disputes. Everyone is happy when they collectively manage a homestay, and it also frees up some labor, since resources are limited. What kind of inspiration do you think your projects can provide to areas that face similar heritages and challenges? Based on our personal experiences, no matter where we are, we value clean mountains, clean water and pure hearts. Our goal in any development model is to protect the environment and people. Approaching tasks with this mindset leads to innovation and new possibilities. While we don't have specific plans or suggestions now, we deeply respect and appreciate nature, knowing it's not just for us, but for future generations too. It's not about depleting the resources for our own pleasure. Therefore, with gratitude and a selfless mindset, we aim to maintain our original purpose when choosing how to live and develop. Our practical experiences have shown positive results so far. So your goals are attainable and you'll keep trying? Yes, we want to keep going because what we've accomplished already brings us so much joy, delight and bliss. Why wouldn't we stick with it? If it's that amazing, beneficial and enjoyable, Decoupling from China is self-destructive, so says Helga Zeblachuj, founder and chairperson of the German think tank, the Schiller Institute. She calls the idea a geopolitical plot, which amounts to economic suicide for Germany, with the European Union and the world economy suffering the consequences. If decoupling from China will lead to further damage, what are her thoughts on the so-called alternative approach of de-risking with China? And as the new Silk Road lady, how does she rate the BRI 10 years on? Has it proven to be the new world land bridge like the ancient ones? Ms. Zeblahuj, welcome to The Point. You have said on various occasions that uh, to decouple from China, there will be potentially enormous cost. What exactly do you mean by that? How enormous would the cost be? 
Well, first of all, I don't think it's very practical given the fact that the economy is both between Europe and China and the United States and China are so interwoven that you know it's like cutting your own hand off when you when you do that. Furthermore, I think that you know the Western financial system is in a terrible condition. Um, Bloomberg recently mentioned that uh, 4,800 U.S. firms, uh, banks, uh, half of them are bankrupt. The U.S. debt may be sold, um, and that that would lead to a worldwide panic, unemployment, and so on. I think we are sitting on a powder keg. I think if if this policy is continued, you know, the real losers will be the West because the Western financial system is bankrupt, while other countries like China are based much more on physical economy, therefore they would survive such a situation much, much better. But you can see in the case of Russia, where the sanctions completely backfired. It was not Russia which suffered. Now Germany is being deindustrialized as a result, and uh, Russia is doing relatively well. So I think this policy is completely foolish and the people who are pushing decoupling are economically, uh, you know, extremely stupid. Now, trade between China and Germany soared to 300 billion euros last year, making China Germany's uh, number one or main trading partner for the seventh consecutive year. But some, somehow, some people are calling this economic dependency. Uh, do you think that is the case? And how to explain this mentality that a lot of trade necessarily puts you in a disadvantaged position? I think that... Is sophistry, you know. I mean, look, when you have a functioning world economy, countries cooperate. Germany has benefited tremendously from cooperating with China. Without the Chinese economy being de facto the motor of the world economy, the world would be in a much worse state. So it's it's sophistry. I think you know the people who are saying these things are just lying. It has no reality in economic fact. And right now, Germany is completely dependent on the United States. We are now buying uh, energy, which is three times more expensive than the Russian gas in the form of American LNG. Um, the American uh, legislation, the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, causes uh, firms to you know, leave Germany and invest in the United States because otherwise they can't survive. So Germany is becoming dependent more and more from the United States and not from China. So, it, you know, people should not always believe the formulations which are being used because they have an intention almost all of the time. You are known to many as the new Silk Road Lady. As we celebrate the 10th anniversary of the idea of uh, Belt and Road Initiative, um, do you think this initiative has made the kind of impacts it was expected of? And um, concerning the various Western concerns concerns associated with this initiative so far, such as high debts, what are your thoughts? Well, I think that the 10 years of Belt and Wall Initiative have completely transformed the world. Uh, for example, the countries of the global south have now a new self-confidence that with the collaboration with China and the Belt and Wall that they can finally overcome colonialism, poverty, underdevelopment. 
and I have seen in the recent period a complete new self-confidence, which is expressed, for example, in the fact that the BRICS countries have 19 applications for membership. Uh, many organizations of the Global South are now saying they need to take a stronger voice in the shaping of the world because they represent the majority of the human species. And that, I think, is only to be explained because the Bad Award Initiative exists and many fantastic projects have been realized, like the China-Pakistan corridor or the fast train between Jakarta and Bandung in Indonesia or the uh, fast train between Laos and Kunming and many, many other such projects. So I think this is really not to be stopped and no matter what the West is trying to do, I think that they have lost the game and the China has proven that they do indeed something in the interest of the developing countries and that the win-win policy is much superior than the policy of trying to suppress others. However, to proceed, to go forward and to avoid the kind of scenario that you have warned, which is the world falling into two blocks, one led by one represented by the U.S.-led West and the other Russia, China and the Global South, to avoid this scenario, what do you think China needs to do in order to proceed to, to create that kind of win-win? Well, I think that the, the three initiatives by President Xi Jinping, the Global Security Initiative, Global Development Initiative and Global Civilization Initiative together as a package are the key to solve the situation because we need the new global security and development architecture which takes into account the interest of every single country on the planet. And the only kind of global thinking doing that comes really from these three initiatives. So I think that that must be discussed much stronger I would suggest that China should organize a lot of conferences inviting leaders of the Global South to express their view. Uh, and I'm sure that then, you know, this will have impact on the people in Germany, in Italy, in France, because they do not know what the view is of the leaders of the Global South, of the people of the Global South. And there must be found a way of breaking that, because if you have only the opinion of the people, and the people really knew what is at stake. I think they would come to the right conclusion because I believe that fundamentally, fundamentally, man is good. With that, we come to the end of this special edition of The Point with me, Lu Xin, coming to you from Xining, the capital of Qinghai. As usual, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Lu Xin in Beijing. We've got The Point. <laughs>